0: Okay. Welcome to Ebenezer Baptist Church on March 23, 2014, 10:30. Today's message is "Rich Man and Poor Man" by Pastor Lyle Schrag. based on Scripture reading Luke chapter 18, verse 18 to 30. Well, this morning I'm going to invite you to turn and return back to uh, Luke 18. If you remember during the season of Lent, in order to prepare our hearts to be able to receive that rich and wonderful gift of God that is found at Easter in Jesus Christ, uh, there is a moment of preparation that takes place, and and this chapter provides that sort of direction. So in Luke chapter 18, we find that on the final leg of their journey to uh, Jerusalem, Jesus was aware of what was about to happen in verse 31 that Jesus himself announced to his disciples that he would be crucified, buried, and then resurrected. But they they weren't able to make the connections. They didn't know what he was saying. And it was with that purpose in mind that Jesus then, in chapter 18 and then to that point, begins to prepare them for that moment when all of the dots would connect. And he, he prepares his disciples to make sense of that Easter moment by using two teaching strategies, parables and people. Now last week, uh, Isaac uh, settled, Pastor Isaac settled on the parable found at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, Two weeks ago, I focused on the people and that seems to be where my focus lies directly. And there are a string of people in chapter 18 and going on uh, who stand in the line of teaching. They serve as living illustrations uh, to serve the purposes of Jesus Christ. And the first is in chapter uh, 18, verses 15 through 17, where we find that there are infants, and then that circle begins to expand to include children. And ultimately then, by the time Jesus has finished speaking in verse 17, he has incorporated all of the adults who are gathered around him with a very wonderful and yet powerful picture that has a single and a very simple caption. It says, Of such is the kingdom of God. And as I suggested then, that moment may seem like something off the hallmark card. You have Jesus, you have children, you have flowers, you have birds, you have butterflies, a perpetual uh, garden of delight. And at first glance, you may be tempted to say, "In that special? And then move on. But Jesus punctuates that particular scene with an explosive little phrase, with words that would have detonated in the human heart, especially those closest to the scene. Look at the closing words of verse uh, 17. Anyone who does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. No matter what the prevailing religious wisdom of the day may have been, Jesus trumped it all with one clear principle. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And as he said that, you may remember that I said he, was, he wasn't looking at the children at that moment. He was looking directly into the eyes of each of the, do- uh, the adults who surrounded that scene for any one of them to enter the kingdom of God, for any one of us to be saved, we must become, as it were, a helpless baby or child. There is no other way. It's not hard to imagine, then, how his words then just cut right across the grain of conventional uh, religious thought, both then and now. We expect the road to success to be paved with our achievements, don't we? And we expect there to be dividends for our efforts and and our service and our training. As if faith is a matter of investment and the kingdom of God uh, is is the sum total of all of our deposits that we've been making. Assets plus interest. Uh, Now that's what we assume. And so did they. And if that's what we expect, you can imagine then what happens next with them. Without skipping a beat, Jesus speaks these words in verse 17. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And then immediately, without a break, in verse 18, a certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? A certain ruler steps out of the crowd And in contrast with what has just taken place, he is just the opposite of a helpless, dependent infant or child. That's what we read in Luke. Matthew and Mark also record the scene. And in Matthew, as he records the same moment, we get a little more information about this man. He's called a young man of great wealth. He's not just a ruler, he's also rich. Added up, he's got status, he's got standing. He's got clout. I come from Chicago. We talk about clout. He's a rich young ruler. That's what you might read in your Bible. And it doesn't mean that he's royalty per se, but he is definitely a celebrity, a person of respect and of standing in the community, an overachiever, a star, one who lacks nothing, and the perfect candidate, you would think, for the kingdom of God. But didn't Jesus just say something? Unless you receive the kingdom of God like a little child, you will never enter it. Evidently, the message connected. And when it did, it it busted something loose in the heart of that rich young ruler. So look again at verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, on your sermon outline, I have this uh, as a moment which reveals the heart of a true seeker. And especially as he appears both here in Luke as well as in Mark and in Matthew, we get a few more details, as I mentioned. And and in in Mark, we find that he, he didn't just step out of the crowd. He actually ran up to Jesus in order to ask his question. And when he did, he showed great respect because there we read, he bowed down to Jesus. Now add that to what we have now here in Luke, and it takes this whole conversation to a completely different level as he then looks and says, good teacher. There have been some who had come to Jesus and tried to trick him by being somehow sycophantic, but there's nothing like that here. There's nothing tricky. Instead, we have every reason to believe him to be filled with respect and honesty as he comes to Jesus. And along with respect and honesty, we have every reason then to sense that there is a sincere struggle taking place in his heart. His question itself is a clue that there is something very, very seriously wrong in his world. What must I do to inherit eternal life, he asks. Well, the language he uses... And the tense of that verb, do, is very specific in the extreme. What he's saying here is, what is the one decisive act that would settle this issue of eternal life for me once and for all? And it's evident that from the rest of the conversation, he had done just about everything he could imagine, he could think of in order to merit God's favor. But no matter what he did, there always remained that little element, that little grain, that little seed of doubt that made him wonder and then caused him to ask the question, what is the one decisive thing I need to do And hearing what he had just heard from the lips of Jesus, I tell you the truth, anyone who does not come to me like a little child will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That had blown that little bit of doubt that was in his heart into a full-blown crisis. Do you know what that's like? To have that hint of doubt blow up on you? (laughs) We, We find that happening in life at large. Whenever, maybe when you leave on a trip... As you're driving away, you think to yourself, I'm missing something. Can't quite define what it is. I was the last one to leave our house this morning. And as I was coming to the border, I was thinking to myself, did I leave the coffee pot on? (laughs) That little element of doubt that that turns into a blown-up crisis as you're driving down the road. And it's that feeling that I'm missing something. It's the same sort of feeling here. The young man has done so much, but there's just something missing. And he looks at everything he has and everything that he sought to make of himself, but he does not find assurance. Something is missing. He may have gone from one rabbi to the next, asking that very same question what's the one thing I must do? What's the one thing I must do? What's the one thing I must do? He's gone from one teacher to the other. Who knows? He may have heard a hundred one things back and done them all, but he still could not rest. Something was missing. So Jesus, good teacher, what is the one thing I must do to inherit eternal life? And you may know exactly what's going on in his heart because, in fact, it may be going on in yours as well. And maybe that's why you're here this morning, today. Maybe just showing up to church is your way of coming in front of Jesus, respectful and honest and hopeful, and thinking to yourself, maybe here I'll finally get an answer. And without skipping a beat, Jesus gets right down to business. Now on the surface, his response may appear to you to be short and abrupt, even possibly rude. It may strike you as being a bit argumentative. Look at verse 19. Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Now on the surface, that may sound a little harsh, but trust me, it is not. It's just Jesus getting down to business, rolling up his sleeves and, and drilling into the heart of the matter. Now, I realize that there is some debate among scholars about the implications of this verse, and I'm not going to get lost into that debate. So let me just point out a few things. First, Jesus does not deny that he is good here. Please note that. If anything, he accepts the proposition that has been made that he is good. But he needs to take that title of being good to a whole new level and take it from being good to being great. You realize that only God is good, he's saying. He's saying. So if you call me good, it must mean that I am more than just a teacher, even more than just a godly teacher. If we're going to get real technical here, if you're going to call me good teacher, then you'll have to accept the premise that what I teach comes straight from God himself. Do you understand what that says? Look, the question is, has to have some ground rules to it. And he's laying them out. Look, the question about eternal life can only be answered by God. No man can answer it. No rabbi, no celebrity, no self-styled prophet, not even Oprah. The question you're asking is a good one that can only be answered by the one who is good, God alone. So are you prepared to hear what God has to say? Maybe. You know, I get the suspicion that many people may ask the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, but when they ask the question, deep down at heart, they may not necessarily want God's answer or a God answer. Why? Because they want to weigh the options. They want to collect some suggestions. They want to be able to expand their spirituality just a bit. And if they don't like the answer, they might want to get a second opinion. But if God is the one who has the answer and delivers it, then that's it. It's black and white. It is judgment day. It is time to decide. And if an answer comes from God alone, then there's only one thing left to do, and that is to obey. Here, Jesus is not going to play a game of options with this young man. Do you want to hear what God says? Now, I know it's not written in the text, but I have to believe in my imagination as I I read this that, that there is a pause now at the end of that verse, verse 19, to allow a look to pass between the two. As if he's looking at the young man saying, You got that? Okay. Fair enough. Let's proceed. And in verse 20, he says, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. Now you may think in reading that, that Jesus is just laying out a checklist here, but is in fact so much more. In brief fashion, Jesus has just listed five of the Ten Commandments. You know the Ten Commandments, what they are, the, the Decalogue, the tablets of stone given to, by, given to Moses, recorded in Exodus chapter 20 and in Deuteronomy 5. What you also need to know about the Ten Commandments is that they are divided into two parts. The first part relates to the relationship that we have are to have with God, and the second five describe the relationship that we are to have with other people. And that's why when Jesus was asked to identify the greatest commandment in Matthew chapter 22, he says, it's all summed up in this, to love God with all your heart, soul, body, and mind, first five, and to love your neighbors as yourself, the second five. His two-part answer covers all ten. And here in verse 20, he starts with the second half of the commandments. You should not commit adultery, do not murder, steal, give false testimony, and honor your Father, and your mother, so there they are. How you doing? How is that working out for you? Now, now not only does the young man know the commandments, but it is evident that he has followed them. Listen to what he says in verse 21. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. Now, I know you might read that, and a lot of people do, and they see arrogance in his answer, but I don't. The fact was, in that day, there were, in fact, people who were serious about the issues of faith and actually assumed that it was possible to keep all the commandments. One such person was the Apostle Paul. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, he identifies himself that way. He says, as to the righteousness found in the law, I was blameless. There were people who saw themselves having fulfilled all the demands of the law. I don't necessarily see arrogance here, but instead I see a glimmer of hope. Because here is a guy who knows what it is to take God seriously, but still finds himself one step away, unable to connect to that last dot that gives assurance. Can you remember a time in your own life when you realized that God was to be taken seriously and you wanted to do that? Maybe like this, this Rich Young Muir, it was as a child when it dawned on you that God is real and worthy of your utmost respect, and that Jesus is real and worthy of your wholehearted affection, and that the Bible is real and worth your keen attention, and that holiness is better than evil, and that purity is better than sin, and that it is simply good to be good. Do you remember that moment in your life where that dawned on you? And that was your aspiration. Here, Jesus touches the spot where the soul is most eager to connect the dots, and the answer is, is in the commandments that you have held so dear, he says. In verse 22, when Jesus heard this, then he said to him, you still lack one thing. Notice he accepts the confession from the young man that he has in fact fulfilled those second five commandments. He accepts the confession. You've, you've, you, you, you don't, you've done all these things since you were a boy and that is great. That is great. But now you've got the last five commandments nailed down. You're primed now and ready to make the first five and make that final connection. That may not sound (laughs) right, but you look at it and it says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. Now some... read on the surface and assume that here Jesus is making an economic policy statement here. He's declaring himself to be a socialist or something like that. But the issue here is so much deeper. His answer is related directly to the Ten Commandments as if to say you got the last five and that's great but you're lacking one. Which one is missing? Well, which of the Ten Commandments demands complete abandonment of life in order to follow after God? Which commandment insists upon the supremacy of God above all else. It's the one that summarizes the first and the foremost five. Again, Matthew 22, Jesus put it this way. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great, the first, and the foremost commandment. A relationship with God leaves no room for any other competitor. And when... The rich young ruler comes. This competition was very easy to find for his life. It was a matter of his wealth. Money for him was the sole competitor that stood against God. So sell it all, Jesus says, so that God then can be God alone. Was it just about money? Well, that might apply to a lot of people. It may apply to you. You may be, in fact, so attached to your things that God cannot even wedge his way into your life sideways. But for many, net worth may not necessarily be that competitor. That doesn't mean that there's no competition standing between the way of of you and loving God with all your heart, soul, body, and mind. The question that every single one of us needs to ask, what is the competition The one thing that stands in the way of God being supreme in my heart. Ask yourself that question. What is it that drives your life? What is it that defines your sense of purpose and meaning? What is it that dictates your agenda, your actions, your energy, your time, and that lays claim to all of your dreams? For many, it may be a matter of money. But I would suggest that there is a whole pantheon of, of minor deities that all stand as possible competitors and need to be targeted. Love, family, intellect, pleasure, supremacy in your occupation. Consider the challenges that Jesus made in the gospel to others. For those of his disciples who are master fishermen, Peter, James, and John, they were the guys that had bumper stickers on their camels that said, I'd rather be fishing. That was their competitor, and Jesus made an ultimatum to them based on that competition. It's me or your nets. Make your choice. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Is it just a matter of net worth that stands in the way of the kingdom of God? No, a bit later in Luke chapter 18, verse 29, he indicates that your house, your family, and the loves of your life could be candidates to consider as well. Let me give you an example. Years ago, in the early 80s, I was pastoring in Chicago, and in a Bible study I had with a number of young men, one of them made a commitment to Christ. But a few months later, I sensed that he was in a bit of turmoil as he came to the Bible study, his, his attendance began to flag, and he'd come in late and he'd leave early, and his his questions began to flatten out. And, and I sensed that there was something going, going on. And, and so as I asked him, I discovered that he had met a girl who thought that he was hot stuff. <laughs> and the trouble was, he found out that she had a real attitude about Christians and Christianity, and he didn't know what to make of it. And I remember warning him at one time, I said, Scott, you may feel that you're able to balance this relationship right now, but there's going to be a moment that's going to come where she may say to you, okay, big boy, it's either Jesus or may. And when she does, what are you going to say? Well, that moment did come. And that was the last I saw him in the Bible study. Well, in verse 23, the moment came for the rich young ruler and his competitor was targeted. And we read, when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. In verse 24, it says, and Jesus looked at him. And I love the way the gospel writer Mark records this particular moment. In Mark chapter 10, it says, and looking at him, Jesus felt a love for Jesus looked at him not with scorn, not with dismissal, but with love, for he saw the turmoil of decision taking place in his life. And that's how Jesus saw him, and that's how Jesus sees you and me. He knows the turmoil of our heart, the weight of decision, and the sheer effort it takes for us to be able to, 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 to remove the impediment and then draw a line to the last dot and do the one thing necessary for eternal life, setting all things aside to follow Jesus Christ. Look what he says to the young man in verse 24. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It is hard to make up your mind. The weight of decision is heavy and as you face it, it may in fact take your breath away just like it did for the disciples and just like it did for this rich young ruler. So look at verse 26, they are in as much turmoil as the rich young ruler and they came to Jesus realizing that it wasn't just his issue, it was their issue as well and they said, who then can be saved? I don't know if I have it in me to let go of my treasures. Well, I have to think that in verse 26, Jesus turns to his disciples with the same look that he had had for the rich young ruler, something that is gentle, something that is loving, something that knows the turmoil spirit, and yet a look that sparkles with hope because he says, look at verse 27, what is impossible with men is possible with God. It is too hard for you to do this alone. But it's not a decision you do make alone. It's one in which if you let him, the Holy Spirit can invest the courage and conviction to set yourself aside and in a very simple way take the childlike step toward Jesus and following him. So take your time. God is at work in your heart for a purpose. But as the time finally arrives and the Spirit has done its work, then make up your mind. What is impossible to men? It's very possible for God. About a year ago, I got an email. And it took me a while to recognize the name of the, on the email. You know how risky it is to open up emails from people you don't know. And so I had to kind of dig through my 35 years of memory to suddenly realize it was, in fact, that very same young man who had walked away from the Bible study. Thanks to Facebook, he has somehow found my, found my name, and he has sent a note simply to say one thing Thank you. It had taken him several years, but he had finally. Made up his mind and Jesus had won. And after years of following Jesus from that point, he just wanted to let me know the rest of his story that what was impossible with him, what is impossible with mankind, was in fact made completely possible by the Spirit of God. And his heart was full of things. And that is the way it works. Now I realize that the evidence is not complete on this, and there is fairly but 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 there is, and, and trust me on this, a fairly robust tradition in the early church, among the early church fathers, that that there was a name by which this rich young ruler was known. Which may explain why this passage has such personal, intimate details in the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke look down Uh, Down to the look on Jesus' face. In the early church, this rich young man was identified as a man named Barnabas, whose name reappears in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, in Acts chapter 4, verse 36. A name which means son of encouragement, Barnabas. And if you know his story, you realize he owned a huge tract of land. He was an extremely wealthy man, but he went about selling it and then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas, the first true companion for Paul. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And I have to think, if that is true, his name only serves to commend the words of Jesus to you and to me today as well. What is impossible with men is made fully possible by God. And in this season of Lent, it is time for you to get honest with Him. And in a season of deep respect, prepare to receive from God what may seem impossible to yourself. As impossible as Easter, and yet as miraculous because it is God's gift. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your patience. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. Without it, what would we be? Without you, where would we go? And yet you have come before us that we might follow after you. And in following, Lord, that journey of eternal life. I pray that, Lord, you would give us a clarity of vision to see you for who you are and a passion of heart to desire for the, the things that belong to you and that, Lord, because they belong to you, are poured out upon us. And the courage then, Lord, to set all things aside, Lord, those things that would would claim lay claim to our, our lives, set those aside so that we might with, with simplicity and with clarity follow after you and love you, heart, soul, body, and mind, and in all the name of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.